0: And once again, you're making shit
1: up. Well, I think the Korean people would disagree with you. Korean. Yes, that was Korean. Korean. Although if, if we do have any Korean listeners, they're just like, oh my God, he just murdered that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, I can only do as good as Google phonetically spells it out for me. There's <laughs> a reason
0: everyone else in the world just learns English and rolls their eyes at us. Right. right? Yeah. Even though it's probably one of the hardest languages to figure out because it doesn't follow any rules whatsoever. Right. We are such an entitled people. Mm. <laughs> we so bad. Anyway, we're here to talk about hops. We are. We are. So last week was, uh, last classic rather, was hop, or last, whatever that word was you just said. Yeah, yeah. W- was all about hop yard tools and we kind of stayed on that path and this is harvester talk. Mm-hmm. And really to a large, not so much how to buy one, but what it does. Like why, if you're new getting into this, why you need a harvester as opposed to the backbreaking hand uh, hand harvesting.
1: Yeah, well, there's so many misconceptions about what these things do and what the important parts are, right? Because the first thing most small scale growers do is look to build their own because it's a spendy piece of equipment and, you know, nobody wants to borrow money. So you look to build your own. And But what we've seen is that people focus on the wrong damn parts. You know, it's like, oh, they focus on the the actual cone removal, vine stripping process and not the sorting Mm -hmm. because they think that's the the hard part. No, that's the easy part. So it's like explain like the overall process of how mechanical hop harvesting is done, how it evolved that way. And so you can actually be a little bit more informed about what areas you're going to attack first. Simple as that.
0: Yeah, it, it makes sense. And, and that's what we go through in this one is stripping, classifying, polishing, dribble belts and all the all the fun stuff. But you're right. I think for a lot of folks, I mean, there, there are the smaller machines like the ones that, that we made and people are understandably wary about, are those really worth it? But then you jump to a wolf and, well, I'm not at that level. Right. Yeah, but how many friends do you have willing to hunch over a table?
1: And the whole concept of, and I think we talk about this later about you know like justifying what size you're in too, but when you get into mechanical harvesting, but you have these smaller machines that you know are either portable or towable or some something like that, and they cost half as much as a a used wolf, let's say, or not quite half as much. You have to factor in where you're going to put that wolf harvester because you got to have a building to put it in, and all the other like care and feeding around that machine. It's not just the cost of that machine. So yep. you're not really comparing apples to apples when you look at a smaller machine versus, you know, a used wolf. And and that's something people have a difficult time getting their head around too.
0: And we do spend time on that, the whole building a building around your machine
1: yep. concept. Yep, exactly. And and it's, it's just not that
0: simple. No, no. There's one more piece of this episode I have to call out. Our, our intro to this one is – our in my mind infamous dive into the pumpkin beer timetable. Oh Christ! Do you remember that one? Yes, yes. <laughs> that that might have been the first one where where I was just visibly annoyed and ranting from the get go about
1: something. <laughs> is that the one? That is that the pumpkins in Ju- July or whatever yes. it was? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I'm yeah.
0: seeing the beer on the shelf now, when were these pumpkins harvested? And we mm. do the walk back, and uh, Pump- I I know from air quotes. Uh, pum- yeah, exactly. You know. Pumpkin in air quotes or in cans or <laughs> wherever you mm-hmm. want those those non-pumpkins to be. <laughs> but yeah, I think I, over the years, I referenced that so many times, but this was the origin of it, which was kind of fun. Mm. Squash beer. So it's September, September 1st, mm. as we record this. And James, I have to complain a little bit. <laughs> Finally, someone besides me. Oh, I just well, you know, I like playing the devil's advocate when you get all randy mm. about the industry. Yeah. So again, it's September first, but it, it just barely was August. And last week I walk into a package store, and lo and behold, I see multiple brands of pumpkin beer out mm. there. Mm-hmm. Pumpkin beer. And I know that Starbucks released their pumpkin coffee last week as well.
1: And wait, it's... wait, a pumpkin spice latte. Pumpkin, yes, pumpkin spice I latte. Think, I, I think it's a far, far cry from actually being coffee.
0: Well, okay, there's that. Um, <laughs> the, the pumpkin spice piece is what I think is important There is At least they're willing to admit that there's no pumpkin in there. It's pumpkin spice, which is actual spice. Yeah, nutmeg and, and allspice and clove. So they don't pretend to make it pumpkin. So here's my problem with pumpkin beer at this time of year. Okay. A- and granted, the supermarkets are full of Halloween candy. Yeah. So I-, I need you to do some math with me. All right. Okay. So last week, let's go back a week and a half. Let's say the beer was showing up canned and bottled on the 20th of August. Okay. Let's let, let's walk backwards from there. When did they have to Finish that brew and start the canning and bottling process for that to get through all the logistics
1: and get to the store by the 20th of August. Okay, so let's walk backwards and you keep track of this. Mm -hmm. So 20th of August, so let's say, what kind of brewery is this? Are these like real local or is this like regional kind of stuff? Oh, this is regional stuff. All right, good. So 20th of August, so that means the distributor had it in hand by, I want to say probably the second week of august okay i mean at the absolute latest Um, so if the if the distributor had it then yep so then we walk back say all right let's say these are ales so they're relatively fast fermenting so let's say that it was in the fermenter for let's just say in the brew house for three to four weeks From start to finish. Okay, so early to mid-July. Right around the 4th of July, brewers were probably
0: making pumpkin beer. Okay. Do you know of anywhere in the United States where you're going to get fresh pumpkin (laughs) on the 4th of July? Or did this
1: all come from a can? (laughs) Well, that's a really good point. Let's talk about that. If they used actual pumpkin, then it would have been pumpkin puree. Mm-hmm. and pumpkin puree is exactly what it sounds like it's pureed uh pumpkins that come from a special couple of varieties of pumpkin that have like ridiculously thick walls like you would need a reciprocating saw to carve these j- into a jack-o'-lantern because they're made for pie the pie industry and the puree industry B- because they are like a baking slash food ingredient they are relatively low in sugar and as a result they don't taste necessarily all that great you know you're cranking open cans and you're dumping them in the fermenter or wherever right and you're making this goo the the best uh most palatable i would say uh pumpkin beers are made by taking usually very small sometimes they're called munchkin pumpkins they're very small they're about oh eight to ten inches in diameter maybe even smaller and they're relatively thick walled but they have a higher sugar content and the the good brewers the small ones will split those open and roast them to caramelize those sugars before they brew with them and that will give you a really deep uh, pumpkin pie kind of pumpkin flavor without you know adding a bunch of of excess sugar and spices unfortunately you can't do that on a large regional scale so they're either using extract or they are using pureed uh, processed pumpkin Duh. which is why most of those beers taste, they don't taste like it. they taste like over spiced beer and there's very little pumpkin because the puree they're using doesn't have much flavor
0: yeah, I mean I love pumpkin flavored stuff we've got pumpkin Cheerios in the house right now believe it or not mm-hmm. but I have to say the o- I've stopped buying pumpkin beers because they're never good the only one I've ever really enjoyed I had out by you years ago and I remember you holding on to that because it was just such a good beer. And that was, I don't know if you recall. I
1: do. That was from Potosi Brewing Company. And that was one of those scenarios where they used those small munchkin pumpkins and they cut them and they roasted them. And they used a light hand when it came to pumpkin pie spices, which, you know, if you look at the spices that are mixed up in those blends, they are super potent. And a little goes a really long way. And most brewers just way overdo it. Just way overdo it. Uh, but tis the season like it or not I mean honestly this about the same time brewers started making Oktoberfest beers
0: I've, I have saw one or two of those the other day as well
1: right so and and those take a, a little bit longer to ferment so uh, like I know New Glarus with their Staghorn Oktoberfest which is fantastic uh, you know it was right about the end of June they start brewing that beer so it's ready to go and in stores and I uh, almost picked up a six of that today,
0: and it's it's the market. Yep, it comes back to some degree to the conversations we've had before about the IPA boom and brewing what your customers are asking for. But man, oh man, I mean, see, personally, I'd much rather have a beer with fresh roasted pumpkin in it and not see it until November. But at the same time, I would imagine most consumers are going to. See a pumpkin
1: beer in November and think, oh, that's been sitting here a while at this point. Right. I mean, about the earliest, certainly in this hemisphere, <laughs> that you're going to get <laughs> pumpkin, even even processing pumpkins is probably August, the earliest. Um, so then that would mean your, your beer's not rolling, hitting the shelves until October. And you've lost probably three to four weeks of sales because of that. But like the you know the vintage Scott, we've had him on before. He won't come out with his pumpkin beers until probably the first part of October because he uses actual pumpkins.
0: And is he actually bottling that and getting it into distribution, or that's just in the
1: tap room? Uh, it's usually just in the tap room, just because of the volume of pumpkin he has to roast is pretty ridiculous. So there's really you can't go into distribution with that. So there's another plug for your local you know tap room and and microbrewery to go to the brewery to get those specialty beers, the one-offs that, you know, just are either too expensive to make for distribution or, um, just logistically not, not really viable.
0: Yeah. Maybe that's the answer there is that stuff like that just doesn't belong in wider distribution due to the timing.
1: Yeah. I mean, same could be said for Christmas beers, right? So it's really what's Christmassy about a Christmas beer. It's the spices they toss in it. And, Mm -hmm. You could make that beer at any time. There's really nothing special about a Christmas-type beer, except for the spices, whereas uh, a pumpkin beer, well, it's got pumpkins in it, and if you want to have the best flavor, the best aroma profile, you use fresh pumpkins and you roast them. That is calendar-restricted.
0: So anyway, that was my aggravation last week. Yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate your aggravation. <laughs> Thank you for humoring me and building the calendar out so everyone understands the truth about the pumpkin beer that they're, the truth, that they're drinking right the now. Truth, the truth, the truth, the
1: secret dark truth of pumpkin beer.
0: We're all about the
1: truth. And it's a love it or hate it sort of thing. I don't know anybody who's like, meh, it's all right. No, people are like, oh, I love pumpkin beer, and other people are like, bleh. I love the concept of pumpkin
0: beer. Yeah. Pumpkin coffees are the same way with me. They... I always love the idea and I'm invariably disappointed.
1: Well, look at, I mean, look at the family of plants that, um, that the pumpkin is in. It's in the, it's in the, uh, cucurbit family. So it's in the same family as zucchini and squash and, and cucumbers and things like that. And not really known for robust, intense flavor, (laughs) Mm -hmm. kind of mm, survival food, more or less. Survival food. <laughs> Although, you know, I could see a cucumber and like a cucumber and sea salt goes, but if I see a pumpkin goes, it's all over.
0: Ooh, uh, yeah, I can't even imagine how that's going to work. I will get stabby.
1: And it's stabby. stabbier, I guess.
0: Yeah. So, so we've managed to blow 10 minutes talking about pumpkin beer. Nice. And, um, and I'm just going to take your thunder right now and say getting the pumpkin correct is a critical
1: part of this process. Did you just say critical? I did. Ah, oh, damn it. It is true. It is very important. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: before we get into the, the big topic of the day here, one other thing. We've mentioned before. We put it on Instagram. We are running a contest. We want to get... Feedback from those of you who are looking at starting your own hop yard and give us some information about who you are, what your background is, what kind of land you've got, what your plans are, and let us do a little dissection on the air of what your plan is and how we can help point you in the right direction. And that direction might be a complete 180 about face, but we want to give you the right direction.
1: And even folks that are, you know, if you've already got, you know, a few hundred plants in the ground and you're... You think you want to go big time you know we include you in that um take the plunge and let's let's have an honest discussion about your fate
0: yep we'll we'll always shoot straight with you even if you don't like what we have to say um <laughs> what is that what has that ever stopped me <laughs> never. <laughs> never never so please reach out to us on that uh what else have i got mentioned in a while uh, iTunes, you know, give us some likes, give us some comments. We're getting a lot of good feedback now, starting to flow through on Instagram and comments on the website. Keep those coming. So we know if you want to hear what we have to say, otherwise it's just the two of us talking to each other and we can do that without wasting disk space.
1: And it's, yeah, right. And it's, it's been helpful. Folks have been asking for topics and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's great. Cause there are some things that obviously, uh, if we want to push Greg's button, we'll talk about pumpkin beer, but Grr. if we want to know what you guys want to hear and give us some ideas and there's a few that we've got in the waiting in the wings here that are really good and before we went on to record today we um greg and i hashed out uh two or three new episodes just based on some some comments that folks had so keep them coming
0: yep yep and so we're going to get into talking about harvesters today oh boy yes and um to your point james we had a comment on Instagram a few weeks ago. Hey, when you guys talk about harvesters, can you talk a bit about some of these mobile, smaller, the non wolf harvesters and what's going on with them? Are they worth it? That sort of thing. And it really wasn't something we had considered getting into. But again, a listener brought it up and we will absolutely make that part of this conversation because, especially now as the season's winding down, you're starting to see those come up for sale. People are trying to get rid of them secondhand. And we will get into the pros and cons
1: of some of the models that are out there and what you should be aware of. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's folks in the southern hemisphere who are just gearing up, and so you know they've got that got it on their mind. So we might as well talk about harvesters today.
0: Yep. Okay. And Hilltop Hops Farm, by the way, are the folks that asked about the the smaller harvesters. Yep. So thank you. Yep.
1: We're going to talk about them today. So what do you want to know? You so, so we should start it off by saying maybe by saying. So you tried harvesting by hand, and you don't want anything to do with it. (laughs) And so what are your options, right? There's these whole plethora of reinventing the wheel harvesters, small ones. There's the used wolf machines. There's the new wolf machines in Downhauer. And then there's the uh, DIY, build it in your garage, basement, workshop sort of thing. And all of those are, are different means to the same end. Which is getting cones off of binds in a, oh, by doing the least amount of damage, but also being way more efficient than hiring forty drunk hippie mm-hmm. vegans to come work in your hop yard.
0: Forty drunk. I'm I'm writing that down for an episode title. Forty drunk hippie vegans, and you know you you, you said having it done more efficiently and all that, and we'll get into the details here. But it's it's a very important balance between doing it fast. And doing it completely and with a minimum of damage.
1: Right. So, and those things sometimes are mutually exclusive of one another. And so it's really walking a fine line. I have seen some things... I I say things because I hesitate to call them machines. I'm not exactly... More like maybe metal sculpture um, with some motion that terrified me. Uh, And this is coming from a guy who built something called the Mangler. So uh and then i've seen you know exquisite pieces of machinery uh that have decades and decades of of iterative engineering and redesign behind them and ultimately if things are balanced correctly in, in any harvester form what comes out the back end is clean cones and what comes out the side is garbage so they all do the same thing and for folks kind of curious you know what makes all of these different harvesters different you know I say, all these harvesters are they really different no they're not ultimately it comes down to three things it comes down to removing the cone from the vine without destroying it right without shattering it and then the rest of it is is cleanup so because you're also going to strip off gobs and gobs of leaves so now you want to get rid of the leaves uh, out of the cone stream and It's a two-step process. The first step is what we call air classification. Hop cones are dense and spherical-ish as compared to their, and so they have the least amount of surface area for their volume. So air tends to flow around them as opposed to big flappy leaves that get blown all all about. So air can very quickly separate 95% or more of the garbage that is in the cone stream from stripping. That attribute right there, the air classifying, is the number one reason most small mobile harvesters on the market today are junk. I said it. You heard it. They do not do anywhere near what they advertise uh, for, for yield because stripping is the easy part. It's sorting out all the leaf and stem debris from the cones that takes a lot of tweaking. And redesign and effort and frankly you can't package that efficiently in a machine that you can drag around from site to site to site there's a reason why a wolf 140 is the size that it is it's because it works fabulously take that and condense it down into a machine that's half or a third of the size and still claim that you can process 140 binds an hour it's, it's total bullshit it's just not gonna happen
0: And this is coming from us who built and sold machines for a while. Correct. And machines that we used on our own farm. And we tried to get around these limitations. That's how we learned about the limitations, was trying to build through Mm -hmm. them. To your point, we had multiple iterations of the Mangler and the Mangler 2 and the Mangler Jr. Um, No one ever actually got mangled, but it was... There
1: were some close calls. It was kind of brutal. Well, it's because that stripping portion is what everybody sees because it looks the most violent. But that's not really where the business is happening. The business is happening in the number one, the air classifier. And then number two, we call the dribble belts. And those are the ones that everybody sees that they think, oh, okay, so I just have to strip. And then I'll have all these inclined uh, conveyor belts to, to do all my polishing for me to get the leaves and because the round cones roll downhill and the fl- flat leaves, you know, get carried up and over. That Those dribble belts are only there to perform a final polish. They are not there as the primary source of sorting and classification. You look at these small mobile hop harvesters and if they have any air classifying in, in them at all, it's an afterthought. It's a fan or something blowing, trying to blow some leaves away off of, a, off of a, uh, a flat bed of debris, and that's not the way you want to do it. And then they, load, they overload these dribble belts with cones and leaves, and they've got like three little dribble belts. It, it, no, some of the Downhauer machines, the multi-multi-million dollar machines out west, you know, the kind of machines that they build, and then they build a building around the machine. They'll have 20, 30, 40 dribble belts in line just to get things polished. So you think your three little dribble belts coming right out of the stripper is going to clean up your, your hop cones? No, it's not. So the thing all of those machines need in them, which none of them have, at least efficiently, is an air classifier. That single addition would turn those machines into into something that actually is reasonably efficient.
0: I always think about that whole aspect of building a building around a piece of equipment when I'm throwing a tarp over my lawnmower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just puts things at a, at a good level of perspective and scale. Mm-hmm.
1: There. <laughs> yep. So those are the three steps in hop harvesting. It's stripping, It's air And then two steps of cleaning, and number one is air classifying, and then number two is, is polishing, and that's where the dribble belts come in. And that's it. That's all that's there. Now, how you control all three of those things is really critical, because you have to have each step in tune with the other, or else you're going to get a bottleneck somewhere. So, like I said, stripping a bind is the easy part. There's... Picking teeth available, fingers available. There's all kinds of different ways that that folks go about doing this, but you can strip way faster on a machine like a wolf harvester that's got, let's say, a wolf 140 that's got six spinning uh, plucking drums. You could strip way faster than the machine can sort, just by thinking, "Oh, well, I'm going to turn this thing all the way up as fast as I can get it to go, because that's going to be the most efficient." No. Yeah, you're going to run a bunch of binds through there, but your machine's going to be so overloaded that the air cannot do its classifying and blow the leaves away. And the dribble belts get overloaded and can't sort anymore. And so you you end up getting a bunch of cones going out in the garbage.
0: I imagine you also run the risk of shredding the cones because you're moving too quickly, of not clearing the bind completely because you're moving too quickly. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, You know... people say I just saw on Facebook this week somebody was posting pictures or asked a question this is my first time running a wolf 140 Um, how how do I know I've got it you know what should the bind look like coming out the other end because there's still a lot of cones on it well if that's the case then you don't have the machine set correctly there should be less than 1% of the cone mass remaining on that bind when it's run through the machine I don't care what machine you're using those cones should be very close to the center of the vine and all the side arms should be naked but that isn't to say that you've got the machine adjusted and you're moving your picking drums so close together that they're almost touching and when that happens you end up shredding cones and breaking them apart and that can cause shatter and that can cause uh, cone will cause cone loss because those that cone instead of being nice dense little round sphere is now busted open with its bracts hanging out there and the wind and the air classifier can grab it and suck it out and take it into the garbage. Okay, I'm I'm
0: I'm just writing down leaving your bracts hanging out in the wind yep. is the backup title. Okay, all right,
1: that's a good one. So having those things orchestrated those three steps orchestrated together is really where your efficiency comes in because it's not about the number of binds that you move through the machine it's the it's also about the yield of cones clean cones coming out you know the good side and the percentage of of cones that are that are going out in the garbage just because of um well just attrition you're going you're going to have that it's never going to be perfect that's the the trade-off that you have when you're doing mechanical harvesting is you're going to lose some cones Mm -hmm. and you know we've
0: discussed the fact that when you're running a farm you need to be able to trust other people and put them in charge of various places and this is one of those situations where you need to someone you need someone with their eyes on this process and to adjust as you're going along There's, it's not a set it and forget it process by any means. Oh no.
1: Yeah. It's not a, oh, I have a harvester now, so everything's going to be awesome. No, that harvester is a clockwork mechanism and you need a, you know, a watchsmith there in order to make sure it's running uh, just right. For instance, with our harvesters, I didn't watch them. I listened to them because I knew what it was supposed to sound like because there's too much to look at. You can't be on all sides of the machines at once, but you can hear it running. And when it's not making the right sound, you know something's wrong. Then you learn what that sound is and you become a little bit more attuned to it. Like I knew when my chopper knives were getting dull, the chopper was a was a little like hammer mill up on top of the machine that would chop up the bind after it came through and so it would just, you know, go out in the garbage. Or when it was unbalanced because maybe it had too much gunk buildup on it. You you learn to hear those differences in vibrations and pitch and tone and that's how you know there's an issue um not by running around looking at everything
0: so in in the biography i'm writing about you um <laughs> um will it would you prefer the harvester whisperer or the hop whisperer
1: uh, Which of yeah those i'm not is... i'm not sure i don't think there's anything whispery about me <laughs>
0: Well, well I, I plan to publish it posthumously.
1: Anyway, oh, okay. So you don't have right. to
0: worry about being embarrassed with whatever. I'm oh talking.
1: no, I'm not embarrassed. I just think bald, grumpy dictator is a better, better descriptor of me than the hop whisperer.
0: But, I just picture you sitting there with your ear next to the uh, to
1: the harvester. You know. Yeah, through through my foam earplugs, through my over the ear earmuffs, <laughs> because you know, damn, it's loud. Um. Okay. So, so we talked about the three basics of any hop harvester let's, let's take a look at what you're really going to have at your disposal. Um, You've got the used wolf harvesters, which uh, ours was from 72 and she ran like a champ and uh, loved her to pieces. Uh, The Baroness was her name. Really, the only evolution that's happened to those wolf harvesters over time is they've refined the dribble belt technology. Um, So they've added maybe more dribble belts or maybe they've changed some fan sizings on the air classifier. But other than that, the, the basic design hasn't changed because it works. Anybody thinking that they're going to reinvent this wheel and find a new way to harvest hops, more power to you. I'm not going to say you're not going to be able to do it, but you need to look at what's worked. And the most successful home-built machines look to what has worked. The stripper drums work great. So spinning drums with fingers on them. Some of the newer Wolf Harvesters, the larger ones, use curtains of uh, like conveyor belts turned vertically with fingers on them that have a raking motion down. Uh, Much higher throughput machines than the drums. But drums are, are easier to deal with. Spinning things around an axle is easier to deal with than tracking a big belt. And really it's about the width of the machine, how wide it becomes. Uh, It's not so you can get more, it's not like the bind or the arms, side arms are getting any wider. It's about how wide the the belt is that all the, the cones get sorted on. So the wider the belt, the more throughput you can have through it. Making a belt longer, like a dribble belt, making it longer doesn't get you anything. You need width. Uh, in order to get good cleaning action, same thing with uh, with the air classifier. So you want to run all of that volume of hops. You know, you don't want a really concentrated narrow stream of hop and debris going into an air classifier. You want to spread that out so the air has a chance to to blow all the leaves and debris up and outward. So you want that field to be wide as well. So wider is better. Um, I would say that you look at how the bind gets through the machine uh, is something that a lot of people get hung up on, and there's usually some sort of a mechanism. Uh, it's usually a pinch chain, so you've you've got a chain that's uh, running inside of a track, and sometimes it's got a clip on it. Sometimes it's got what we call pickup blocks on it, and really all it does is you stick the end of the bind in in. A hole in this track where the chains moving across and you wait for a pickup block to come by and all it does is grab the bind and pinch it between the block and the like the the, the steel channel that the chain is riding in, and it just drags it through the machine uh, keep it simple don't overthink it uh, you're gonna have too many different points of failure to deal with you want to keep it simple so that when something does break because it will a lot You want it to be simple and not something stupid, custom, or difficult to fix.
0: So are there other, you know, the wolf is the industry standard, certainly. Right. Are there other models out there folks should look for? And I think another thing we can get into here is how do you find them? Right. Especially the used
1: ones. So there are other models. There are some checked. Small, smaller scale harvesters that were made not for very long. I think they went out of business in the 60s, late 60s. Uh, the name escapes me right now. You heard me mention Downhauer. Uh, they're the gigantic, massive monsters. So you're not going to be picking one of those up cheap. Um, really, it comes down to a, to wolf, and that's what you're looking for. Where do you find these harvesters? There are some folks out there that have made a business of finding old harvesters and refurbing them. And there are obviously people who have gotten in the game and then are getting out, or they're upgrading. Let's say they start off with a Wolf 140, and then they said, well, you know what, I need a 220 because I have too much hops, so I need something a little bigger. And the advent of social media has been a boon for the hop grower because you know, before that, it was almost impossible to find, you know, used stuff. It'd have to be a friend of a friend of a friend. But now, you know, on social media, there's all kinds of f- groups that you, one can join and put feelers out there and, and even just search uh, online for, you know, used wolf harvester and boom, you're going to find them. Now, granted, they're, they've doubled in price since we started. Uh, so we were a very early convert to the wolf and we had a We had one that um, I think it was, I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth wolf harvester in the U S used wolf. And you know, we brought it over and paid about 35 grand for it shipped. But now that same unit will go for double that, but it works. And people say, well, that's too much money. I can't afford that out of pocket. No, neither could we, I went and got a little equipment loan for it. What are you thinking? You're not going to buy this stuff out of pocket. If you are, why are you growing hops and give me your money? Uh, go get it alone. This is, it's called farming people. It's not a hobby at this scale. So I would, I would highly encourage people if you want to do this and you're going to do this even semi-pro, you need to get an appropriate harvester. And the first thing I would look for, I would exhaust every single angle I possibly could with finding a used wolf harvester before I invested in any smaller, uh, mobile machines for you know half the price you get what you pay for yep very true in most things mm-hmm. it's that's just the sad sad part of it you know it's you want to be a farmer then you have to buy the equipment do you think a you know a dairy farmer or a a row cropper goes out and pays for a brand new tractor cash in hand hell no <laughs> and why that's that would be very poor use of your money when you can go and finance it and have that interest as a write-off than to go take your money that's already been taxed and shell it out on a piece of equipment that you can't then take the depreciation on. So these are parts of running a business, not a hobby hobbyists. You know, we start looking at tools for our hobby and we think of how much is it going to cost me out of pocket to buy X, Y, or Z in a business. You look at it and say, what's the financing rate on this? And what are the terms, and how long do I have to pay it off? And you can mm-hmm. go ahead. Because a couple of hundred bucks a month to have the right tool to give you an edge is way smarter money than trying to scrounge up and do whatever you have to with your home equity line of credit, for God's sakes, and go out and buy a twenty-five or thirty thousand dollar small machine that only does part of the job you need it to do.
0: Mm -hmm. And you compare that against what you would be spending on hand harvesting. Oh, God, yeah. And the lack of efficiency there and the lack of, you know, we've talked about the lack of reliability of getting labor in Mm -hmm. and all that. And it becomes a a bargain when you really run the numbers Mm -hmm. to
1: do this right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, my grandfather used to tell me all the time, it's like, you know, you buy the best tool that you can afford. You know, you don't have to go out and buy the absolute shiny brandiest new thing. Hey, if you want to do that, go buy a brand new Wolf five fifteen for seven hundred thousand dollars. It'll take two years to build, because they're all one offs, but you could do that and it would certainly do the job and you'd get a couple of Germans to come over and help you set it up, but Or we could do it. Or we yeah, no. <laughs> Not doing that. <laughs> and anyone who's got 700 to spend on, on that, I'd like to have a conversation mm-hmm. with you. <laughs> there, are, there are more out there right now than... Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what else to say. I, I would say that if you're going to build your own, you need to take a look at what a wolf harvester does and scale that down to your size. And do not skimp on the air classifying because it will screw you. Uh, don't, don't pay so much attention to the whirly spinny bits that do all the stripping because that's all known technology. It's the, the, the dark art is in the separating.
0: What's interesting about all that to me is that it's not something where it's not going to work. I mean, you'll, you'll put it all together. You'll start running it and say, wow, this is working. And it's not until you start measuring your efficiency rates, at which point it's too late. That's when you'll realize that your air separation isn't doing what you need it to do. Yeah. It's going to appear to work properly.
1: That's correct. And here's the kicker. If you're going to build your own, you get one shot a year at this. Mm -hmm. That's it. So if you're lucky and you have other people out there that are going to continue to hand harvest because you're going to need them until you have your machine dialed in, um, that you might be able to make some tweaks and get a second go at it. but really you get one shot a year yep. and, and there's there's nothing
0: good to run as a test
1: no believe there. me we've that, tried yeah <laughs> we have tried
0: and there was one suggestion dan had but it was more expensive than actual hops uh, carnations yeah something yeah
1: something like that like yeah okay why don't you go out and spend that money uh That's about it. I don't know what else. What other specifics people would want to know? Well,
0: in terms of you mentioned, in terms of finding one, so social media is a wonderful thing Mm -hmm. from that perspective to see what's out there. You know, and whether it's a wolf or one of these smaller brands, it's no different than when you're buying a car. If someone's selling it, they have a reason. Mm -hmm. Be be savvy about that. Ask the right questions. If they're getting out of the hot business, why? If they're upgrading, why? Yep.
1: Ask them, oh, so here's something. If you're going to look at one of those smaller units, ask them the following questions. What was their average yield per plant? How did they find the machine worked on different varieties? Because from what I've seen, at least in field days and whatnot around the U.S., where some smaller growers have these units, is that the the, the binds they're running through these things are what I would consider probably a quarter to a third- of the yield that they should be. So the plants are smaller. And I remember the first time I ran up on one of those machines and I looked at it and all I thought was, my God, if I stuck a single brewer's gold bind through there at that yields two and a half pounds dry, the thing would choke. I'm just choke. <laughs> and so that right there told me everything I needed. Those machines are built for people who are not getting commercial yields so when they say yeah i can run 140 binds an hour through one of these things compared to a wolf right and if i took that same bind you're running through that mobile unit at 140 and stuck it in my wolf i'd probably be running about 300 just because they're so small and scrawny so when when people use bind numbers to measure sort of harvest rates you need to ask questions about what kind of bind were these scrawny brewers gold or were these monster chinook plants And usually with the smaller units, you're going to find that, oh, well, you know, we haven't dialed it in and we could only test on small plants. I would say the numbers that that most manufacturers give for those smaller units, you need to cut them at least in half if you're going to talk about commercial yield plants.
0: I think I would also want to know max hours in a day they've had it running. Oh, sure. Yep. How long can it run? And how many bodies do you need
1: on the machine at all times? Right. I've seen again because they lack that that air classifying i've seen those machines have five or six people lined up on the outfeed just sorting trash out what have now what have you gained yourself it's supposed to be a labor saver but you still have to have you know eight people running the harvester six of them are picking out garbage and people out in the field harvesting plants and bringing them in so what have you saved yourself compared to you no, know, I understand. I'm going to say it again. A used wolf machine that's dialed in well and you have two people. I, it's it these things are not apples to apples when you're comparing them and and don't let anybody try and convince you otherwise. Yeah,
0: as as you said before, you get what you pay for. Mhm. You you
1: got this podcast for free. So, oh, yeah. You know, well, I know. See? Put that into perspective. And it was worth every penny they spent. Mm-hmm. Way more efficient than hiring 40 drunk, hippie, vegans.